eternal one, the living God, full of power and grace and truth. And it's our joy to worship him today. And for those of us who have braved the rains, God bless you. And uh, would you turn your Bibles with me to Jude. Jude, a little tiny letter, just not, not even one chapter long. Jude is an incredibly important letter, and it's, it's often uh, neglected. And so we're trying to take time to not neglect it, but to pay attention to its incredibly important and timely message for us today, for the church. So Jude, and today we're going through Jude 24, or excuse me, 3 through 16. Jude verses 3 through 16. Let me read the Word of God. Hear the Word of the Lord. Actually, I'll start in verse 1 and read through verse 16. This is the Word of God. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. That's what we went through last week. It was a great, encouraging word, these first two verses, and then he jumps right into getting serious. So here is verses 3 through 16. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to fully remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, 
the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. This is the word of the living God. May he write its truths upon our hearts. Would you join me in prayer again? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the first two verses that we studied last week that were so encouraging, that reminded us of who we are in Christ and what we have, the great treasure that is ours. And Lord, even though today this passage, the verses that we have to go through are are difficult, Lord, they're hard to swallow, they're hard to read even. God, we need them. We need to understand the dangers that Jude wrote to the church of thousands of years ago because not much has changed, Lord, in the heart of men. And so I pray, God, that you would help us as those whose hearts have been changed by you, who've been given new hearts to love you, to worship you, to treasure Jesus, God, that we would grasp exactly what Jude is talking about and that we would walk it out in our lives. Help me to, uh, Lord, there's some hard things in this text, so help me to explain it in a way that would be helpful to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. And we thank you for uh, joining us if you're online this morning. And um, we will continue to pray that this storm just stays pretty calm and that everyone's okay. And, and uh, I can't promise you a short sermon, but we did, uh, we're trying to get you out of here as soon as possible before all the craziness is supposed to happen. However, we got a lot of verses to cover, right? So Jude. Jude, in essence, it, what we're just reading here is, 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 a, is a short sermon uh, that, that Jude preaches through letter about, and, and this text in particular before us, he's really bringing out these, these dangerous doctrines that are found and discovered through dangerous practices of people that are right there in the church. We don't know which church this was originally written to, which may, leads me to think it was written to churches all over certain regions and certainly applicable to our church and churches all over the world today. These are serious issues that Jude is dealing with, and he deals with them in a very serious way, and you can tell that just by the language he uses for these people. He's pointing out a certain group of people. We're going to find out who they are in six points this morning. First, there's a necessary request. Second, we're going to see a definite reason for the request. Third, a reminder of, of, actually several reminders. Three, of certain judgment that is to come. Fourth, the wrong reliance that the ungodly have and and the reason why they wander off into these areas. Fifthly, he's going to give a real strong rebuke for those who are rebelling. And then lastly, sixth, he's going to speak of judgment, certain retribution for all the ungodly. 
So let's look at point number one, a necessary request. We saw last week that, um, that he, he began his salutation with this beautiful language, and then he explains how he shifts gears here in verse 3. He says, beloved, which I love that. He starts off with beloved. He's already told them, you are beloved of God. You are the ones the Father loves. And so I'm, I'm, I'm writing to you with this incredibly important, dangerous warning as the beloved of God. So beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, and by that word, common salvation, it's not common in the sense that it's cheap or, or that everyone has it, that it's, it's universal in nature. It's common in the sense that we're, we're all saved in common, in, in community. God doesn't have one way of salvation for Americans and another way for Africans. He doesn't have a one way of salvation for rich and another for poor. One for male, one for female. It's a common salvation it's because it's God's salvation. And if it isn't a common salvation, if it isn't the pure gospel that's common no matter where a man or woman is in life, no matter what's going on in their life, it's a common salvation because it's about one thing and one thing only, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what saves us. The grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ in His perfect life, His sacrificial death, His glorious resurrection. That's the only way of salvation. This is the common salvation that we all share. Yes, even the ones that disagree with you on certain things. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said this about common salvation. He says, upon other matters, there are distinctions among believers. But yet there is a common salvation enjoyed by the Arminian as well as by the Calvinist, possessed by the Presbyterian as well as by the Episcopalian, prized by the Quaker as well as by the Baptist. Those who are in Christ are more near of kin than they know of, and their intense unity in deep essential truth is a greater force than most of them imagine. Only give its scope and, we will, and it will work wonders. Beautiful words. We can grasp our common salvation. He writes to them. That's what I wanted to go deeper in with you. I wanted to talk to you about that, but a necessity arose. He says, I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you to contend for the faith. He's about to go into this very challenging language. And he's letting them know there's something you need to hear, church. If you want to know how a church will fall apart, if you want to know how a church is going to collapse, it's not going to be a result from what happens on the outside. And a lot of times we Christians, that's what we look at, like, oh, the world's getting so bad and everything's crumbling. That doesn't mean the church crumbles. That means the church advances. We press on. We move forward. A church is not going to collapse because of what happens outside. The Bible bears testimony to that. History bears testimony to that. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Persecution only increases the gospel advance. But the fact that there's no church left in Ephesus 
The fact that the, that the church in, in Scotland and England and parts of Europe have crumbled in recent years. The fact that there's places all over this nation and the world where there were once strong, solid churches. And they no longer have the same life. The same vitality isn't because of the secular culture. It's because of internal collapse. And that's why he writes this way. There's something you need to hear. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to what to contend for the faith. That word contend, it's a great word. It's it's an athletic word. It, 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 it comes with the idea of the connotation of the wrestling mat. Think of, it, it's, uh, it's related to the word agonize, where you're struggling. Think of some jujitsu uh, grapplers on the ground together, and there's just this war going on where they're contending. They're, they're agonizing in, in pain over trying to wrestle to win the contest. It is, it's, it's not in the ESV, but in some versions it, 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 it's translated as earnestly contend. And that's a good translation because that's what it means. It's the language of struggle and it's in the present infinitive which shows that the Christian struggle is continuous. It doesn't stop. He's saying there's going to be something that's really going to stretch you and it's going to demand your, your all. It's going to demand your exertion and you're not going to be able to take this kind of, of stand in a weak fashion. It can't be superficial. It's got to be, be there because of strong roots that are, that are deep. You're going to have to be prepared to stand for truth. And, and again, not in the outside world alone, in the church itself. He says we are to contend for what? For not faith. For the faith. Contend for the faith. There's a big difference. People love to talk about faith today. You know, you can go to a, a faith meeting. I'm invited a lot of times to, hey, come do this. It's a, it's a faith breakfast, prayer breakfast of faith. And, 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 and you go and you show up and, and here's the Muslim and here's the Buddhist. And, here, and here's the, 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 the pastor who's accepted all forms of perversion into their church. It's not faith. It's the faith. He's not talking about our own personal belief or our feelings or, or sense of, of truth. He's talking about the essential truths of the Gospel that all Christians hold in common. That's the way that this word, the faith, is used continuously throughout the New Testament. We're to earnestly contend for the truth for the faith. It's a body of, of teachings. It's a body of, of doctrine that you, you can't let go of or else you crumble. The faith is, is this body of truth that since the beginning of the church, the church throughout history has had to take stands on and, 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 and take and make sure it's understood in definite forms. Thomas Manton the old Puritan I've been quoting because he's got an excellent commentary on Jude. It's really long like the Puritans. They just write forever. It's great. 
he says this, the faith is not a thing invented, but given. Not found out by us, but delivered by God Himself and delivered to our custody that we might keep it and guard it for eternity. So we're to contend earnestly for the faith. Why? Because what we learn in, in, the, in the Scriptures, what we learn of the Gospel of Jesus Christ is valuable. Now, some people don't value it. You may not value it like you need to, but this is the warning. This is the call. This is the challenge to know the truth, to guard the truth, to contend for the truth. I was at the mall the other day, and as I was walking through the mall, I saw on, on, right here over here in Plaza Bonita, there's one section where there's like four jewelry stores all in one area. Have you seen that? And I walk by, and I'm looking inside these jewelry stores, and there's security guards standing right there in front of each one. And obviously, there's reasons for that in our culture today. Then I walked a little further, and I saw some other jewelry stores. They were little kiosks. And there was a whole bunch of them. And there was jewelry in there, but I made a determination that that jewelry in there I don't think is quite as valuable as the jewelry that is being guarded and kept. You hire a security guard because what you have is valuable. You guard and protect and earnestly contend for what is valuable. And what is valuable is the faith. What you believe matters and what you believe will be shown in how you walk it out by living your life and oh, I hope and pray that you understand the value of Christian truth, Christian doctrine. Jude is in essence giving them a warning of heresy that has crept into the church. What is heresy? It's not anyone who disagrees with you. <laughs> heresy is going against the truth, the faith, the essential core doctrines of the Christian faith. You say, what are those? Probably best to explain them in re rehearsing the creeds, the ancient creeds of the faith. These are things that, that our church fathers over the years have fought for. You have the Apostles' Creed. You have the Creed of Athanasius. You have the Nicene Creed. These creeds are what, what guarded the essential truths that were pulled out of the Scriptures to help us understand what a Christian is and what a Christian believes. Where does a Christian die? On what hills should we die on when it comes to the truths that are in Scripture? I think certainly it's laid out well for us in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He died and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day, He rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Catholic Church, which is, we get confused on that as Protestants, it, the word is a good word. It's not Roman Catholic, it's the Catholic Church, which means universal. It's the Church of Jesus Christ. 
the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Those are hills to die on. Those are truths to guard and to protect. Out of these truths of Scripture, out of understanding of our, of our common salvation, that, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The inspiration and infallibility and authority of Scripture. All of these things, these are things that we die on. We contend for the faith. I wonder what you're willing to die for when it comes to what you believe. And once you know what you're willing to die for, you'll know then what you're actually willing to live for. There's a few ways we contend for the faith. We contend for the faith in a positive way. And that's when we give unashamed witness to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's that's when we share the faith with people. That's when we get in Gospel conversations with people. We distribute Gospel tracts and and Bibles to people. We make possible the the training of of faithful ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We we send missionaries to foreign lands. We train and raise up faithful pastors who, who honor the Word of God in their teaching in their pulpits. There's a few of many ways that we can contend earnestly for the faith in a very positive way, but there's also a negative way that we can contend contend for the faith, and that's when we withhold support and, and, and withhold encouragement from false teachers. It's when we even recognize and call out a false teacher. It's when we can understand false teaching, which is, which is not well understood in our day and age today. How do you know that? Just look at the guys on TV. Why are they on TV? Why do they have millions of fans? Why are they getting millions of dollars? Because people who claim the Christian faith lack discernment. They need to read Jude. It's the faith that was once delivered for all. We contend for it positively, negatively, and then practically. How do you contend for the faith practically? You love your wife as Christ loves the church. You submit unto your husband as unto the Lord. You honor your parents. You live with a heart of love and care You pray for people. You worship God. All of the multitudes of commandments that are given to us in Scripture, not as constraints, but actually as blessings, as gifts, as as life-giving obedience. The obedience of faith. You actually walk out what Jesus says to do. Which, let's be honest, It's sometimes hard, isn't it? It rubs against my flesh. It makes me, I don't know if I can do that. And oftentimes it's, there's some truth there. It's like, I can't do that on my own. I need, I need God for that. In a practical way, every time you're obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ, you're contending for the faith. He says it's the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. 
There's no change. Uh, there's no Christianity 1.2, 2.0, 3.0. No updates needed, okay? The operating system was set a couple thousand years ago, and it's done. It needs no upgrades. It needs no updates. It's the faith once delivered to all the saints. And so Jude writes a necessary request. Why does he do that? Secondly, a definite reason. Man, we got to get going on this. Maybe this should have been six sermons, brother. <laughs> a definite reason. Verse 4, here's why. Why should you contend for the faith? Because certain people have crept in unnoticed. I said last week, they're, I told you we're going to talk, they're creeps. We're going to call them creeps because that's what they do. They've crept in unnoticed. Who long ago were designated for this condemnation. That's what really makes them dangerous is because on the surface you may not see the danger. They've snuck in and they've snuck in and won your affection somehow. They win your ear. They don't come into the church and say, hey, let's, uh, after church we're going to get together at my house and have a seance. We're going to pull out the Ouija board. It's going to be great. They don't do that, do they? That would be too explicit. No, it's a creeping in. And that creeping is unnoticed. Who? Who's doing this? Jude says ungodly people. And they're ungodly simply because they're, they're not like God. And no matter how they look in their outward appearance, they disregard God. They were unnoticed by men, but not by God. And God's not up there wringing His hands in glory, worrying about those who deceive others through their teaching and through their lifestyle. There might be those who are hidden to us as, as believers, in, even in the church, but as far as God's concerned, their condemnation was marked out long ago. He sees it. What are they doing? That's so dangerous. That's so bad. Well, he goes on and says, they're ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so the idea here is we love to talk of grace, don't we? I hope we do. I hope every single one of us loves the grace of God. Because apart from God's grace, there's no salvation. There's no joy. There's no hope. But they're so ungodly because Jude says they actually come in and they take the grace of God and they pervert it. They, they turn it upside down. They, they turn it on its head. And in, that, in doing that, they, they've turned it into sensuality, which is a biblical word that, that, that refers to sin that's practiced without shame. No, no, no conscience, no decency, <coughs> no purity. <coughs> it's usually biblically used in, in the realm of sexual immorality. But it can also, and it is also regularly used in the sense of brazen anti-biblical teaching where truth is denied, where lies are taught without shame. And, and I think Jude bo had both ideas in mind when he's writing and using that word. These are certain men that have doctrinal problems, but they have doctrinal problems and they have moral problems that shows and displays their doctrinal problems. 
Because what you believe leads to how you behave. And, and Scripture, New Testament, it's all over the letters, especially of Paul, that, that how you live matters because how you live reflects what you actually believe. And Sinclair Ferguson said these words. He said, we live in an antinomian world. That means a disregard for law. Even in, in Christian communities, you may have, I know I kind of grew up with that sense of, of, of the law is bad, grace is good, which is not biblical. The law shows us how bad we are, but the law is good and right and holy according to Romans. It's a beautiful gift. Certainly the law has no saving power, but the law is good. But we live in an antinomian world, says Ferguson. He says we frequently hear that God loves us the way we are. The truth is that since the fall of Adam, God has loved only one person the way He is. We've lost sight of the fact that it is the way we are by nature that put Christ on the cross. The biblical perspective is quite different. God loves us despite the way we are. And so Jude comes urging the church to resist those who pervert the promises of grace into an excuse for sensuality, passions of the flesh, things that are contrary to sound doctrine. You see, God's grace, when, when we understand it, when we actually rightly receive God's grace, it doesn't lead us away from our Master and Lord. It actually binds us to Him, brings us deeper into Himself, Grace liberates us, not only by forgiving us, but also by freeing us from bondage to sin by instilling a loyalty to Christ in our hearts. Because He's given Himself for, for us, we willingly and lovingly and gratefully give ourselves fully to Him. There's a recognition upon the reception of grace that He's my Lord and my Master. Jude says they have denied Him as the only Lord and Master. You've got to be careful because there's some out there that are going to teach you things like this. Jesus is your Savior. And then you make Him your Lord. And I understand the nuances of what they're trying to say in the sense of because we all fall and fail. So it's not looking at it from, from perfection standpoint. But, but the truth is that's not a biblical formula or teaching in any way. Jesus is Savior and Lord. And you cannot separate the two. He's either Lord of all or He's not Lord at all. And so as, as the Savior, He comes with His graciousness, but He also comes with, these, with a graciousness of demands and commands, and the rebellious heart doesn't like demands made upon him. Don't tell me what to do. He's the only Savior and Lord. And if he's not your Lord, you have another master. And you might think it's yourself, but the Bible teaches us that no, it's sin. 
sin controls you and dominates you. And so when we come to Christ in recognition of His grace, we come in a way where we understand His grace and we freely and willingly are so thankful we give ourselves fully to Him in a position of saying, what do you want from me, Lord? I want this and this and this. Okay, it's really hard, Lord. I know. My grace is sufficient. And as you grow and trust me in faith and obedience, you're going to see that truly my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The bottom line is this, that if we are genuine Christians, we have no freedom to believe anything other than what Jesus taught and to obey it. Probably the greatest challenge to the authority of Scripture in the lives of, of Christians, of my, me, of you, isn't coming from the outside world. Probably the greatest challenge to the authority of Scripture in our lives is the authority of our experience. I know God says it's wrong, but I'm sure He understands. I mean, Pastor Brian, it just feels right. I'm, I'm feeling like it's, it's all good. And if I had $5 for every time someone has told me that over the last 25 years, I would be a rich man today. The reason I'm leaving my marriage, I know God says it's wrong, I, I, but I'm sure He's not going to mind. I, it just seems and feels right to me, and God will forgive me. What Jesus taught and then gave to His apostles, the apostles took and wrote down. And that writing is here in Scripture. They not only gave the revelation of who Jesus is and what He had done, but they also gave interpretation of that revelation, so it's clear. The Scriptures are clear. Oh, that's how you interpret it. The Scriptures are clear. Christ died. So 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus died according to the Scriptures. That's Revelation. He died for sins. That's interpretation. He died for sins according to the gospel. That's explanation. And we have no right to believe anything other than what Jesus taught. And we have no freedom to behave in any other way than what He demands. And how silly it would be for us to step outside the borders of the protective love of Christ. It's because He loves His church so much that He wants us to hold together in this way. And so Jude, Jude's a really good pastor. And he can't just sit there idly by and watch the invasion and the destruction of the flock. 
And so as a helpful shepherd, as a good shepherd, he doesn't just come and offer helpful advice, but he, uh, he gives us a strong and, 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 and forceful prophetic word from God through him to the saints, urging them to wake up and contend for the faith. It's a necessary message for a definite reason. Thirdly, there are reminders then of certain judgment. Reminders because there's nothing new and he goes through that here. Look at verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. He's not, he's not writing this to introduce them to something they've never known. He's, he's writing to remind them of something they must actually never forget. I want you to understand this. And then he goes on and says, uh, he uses three examples, three illustrations. First, that Jesus, I'm reminding you, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. He's reminding them of Numbers chapter 14. And in Numbers chapter 14, we see where God had delivered the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. You remember, they crossed through the Red Sea on the dry ground. All these amazing things were happening. And then they went out of Egypt. And then they come to this place called Kadesh Barnea. And they're on the threshold of the promised land. They're about to cross in, and they send in the spies. You remember? How many went to Sunday school growing up? Ten were bad and two were good. Remember? that? You'll learn that song. The 12 spies go in. Ten of them have a bad report. We can't do it. No, it's not good. They're big people. They're out. It's going to be too dangerous. Two of them are like, let's take the land, which is what God was calling them to do. And what happened? They had no faith. They refused to believe God, and so they were judged. They were not allowed to enter the land except the two, Joshua and Caleb. And did you notice something, though? That was back in Numbers, which was quite a bit of time before Jude wrote Jude, right? Who saved the people out of the land of Egypt? Jesus. Christmas hadn't even happened yet. <laughs> What's going on there? You see, Jude is wanting them to know it's always been about Jesus. Jesus was there, not in the flesh as he came on Christmas morning. But Jesus was there. Jesus was leading them to their salvation. And that same Jesus, the only Jesus, is the Jesus that can save them and continue to save them and keep them. But they didn't believe. And so Jude says, they were led out. Now think about that. This always amazes me. They walked on dry land through the Red Sea. They saw the wall of water. They saw the miracle. They saw the water come out of the rock. And they said, no, God. We're not doing it. And the warning is, God destroyed those who did not believe. Those who doubted, those who rejected God, paid a bigger price than not just entering the promised land. They also received the judgment of God. We see that in Psalm 95. God said, they will not enter my rest. And so the warning that Jude is giving is, is very clear. This is an example for you, he's telling the church. There are certain men who are like these guys who failed to believe and they will certainly be judged. 
But it also warns us as the church that we have to persevere in the faith. We have to keep our eyes on Him. And when He says, go, we go. Verse 6, he goes on and says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. So, all right, we're already here, and I am not going to go probably where you'd want me to go deep into this, but you can study it on your own. Jude is famous for bringing up some difficult and challenging controversial points and this is one of them because he speaks of the angels who sin they're now in prison and waiting for a future day of judgment so there's different interpretations on what what is this meaning it's a little bit obscure um i i have a leaning on it and i and I, when i look at the leaning on it i think he's going back and referencing genesis chapter 6 1 through 4 which in and of itself is a very controversial passage and difficult to understand as Jan found out when he knocked on some guy's door this summer and wanted to argue about the Nephilim. <laughs> uh, appreciate the phone call. <laughs> uh, Genesis 6, 1-4 through 4 says this, When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And this would literally take its own class to go through in, in a detailed way, but the idea, then the challenge in understanding this is this, that there, there seems to be some type of relationship of demonic activity happening among men. The, the word sons of God is often used in the scriptures for angelic beings, supernatural beings. It isn't always used as that, so you don't have to always take it as that. But the idea is this, that there were certain angels that in a way that we don't understand or know somehow perverted relationships, whether it was through demonic possession of, of men, we don't understand it all, and that's not the point. So don't get lost in all of this. The point is what, what Jude is using this as an illustration to, to, to understand that they left their position, their rightful position of what God intended for them. The angelic beings. The Israelites did it, humans did it, even angels did it. And whenever we find ourselves in a similar place wanting to succumb to the temptation to live autonomously, to do as we please, to reject authority, to reject the place that God has put us in, and to remove any notion of, of proper place and proper position, what we're doing is we're waging war against heaven. And we're in danger of becoming subjects of judgment. And so Jude uses this second illustration to point them back to something that they were very familiar with in their understanding in the ancient times of, of this story to say you're not autonomous. And that God's fixed and final judgment will not only fall on, on humanity but also upon those who were once part of the, the worshiping host of heaven. Think about that. He's, do you see why he's using this? The Israelites, look what they were a part of. 
And they still failed. They didn't persevere. They didn't trust. Angels themselves who saw God in His glory failed and fell. Giving in to sin. And were judged. And then he goes into the last third illustration of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. They serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. The point is God is judging sin. And He wants the people of the church that He's writing to to understand that judgment is real. That the warnings are serious. And judgment is not only real, but judgment is eternal. And here's the the biggest wake-up call that Jude is giving. He's saying, there will be those in your church participating in the spiritual community of, of heaven who will receive God's wrath of judgment. And that's sobering. He goes on in point four in verse eight, and we'll see the wrong reliance of the ungodly. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, we see one of the ways they come to the place of being in danger of judgment is they did not recognize the proper authority that God had established. They developed their own revelation. They're relying on their, their dreams. They're claiming prophetic dreams and, 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 and which were really deceptions. They viewed their dreams somehow as authorita- authoritative revelation. And what Jude and all the Scripture speaks is that there is only one authoritative revelation and it is the Holy Scriptures. In this wrong reliance then, and, and here's the, the here's here's... If you're struggling in any area in your walk of faith and you don't understand, should I go this way or this way, what should you do? You always open the book. You always open the book. And the book will be clear in either a straight-out clear command or a principle that you can cling to and you can build your life on and you should be willing to die for. These guys make up their own and we see that even today. Oh, I dreamed a dream and, and God told me this in my dream. Or, or even simply as I have a feeling and as I just know in my heart of hearts. And my heart of hearts, I feel like I'm right. Yeah, but this verse here says this. Yeah, but you know what? I know God is gracious. That's what they were doing. And that's still going on today. He says these people defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. They're making a mockery of God's creation. They say no to legitimate godly authorities, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. What what is that all about? I take that to mean, the Scripture speaks multiple times, like Acts 7.53 says, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Galatians 3.19, the law of God was put in place through the angels. And so here's the supernatural message of, of God's law coming to you to say, obey this. This is right. This is good. They blaspheme it by rejecting the clear commands of God. 
And the one thing that these people, these certain people Jude calls them, are doing is they're detaching themselves from the law of God. And therefore, if the angels stand at the forefront of obedience, as it were, they'd want nothing to do with it. Fifthly, we see strong rebuke for rebellion. Look at verse 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. This is a little bit um, of another controversial passage because you, you say, I don't remember that story in my Bible about Michael the archangel contending over the uh, body of Moses. Where is that pulled from? Well, it's, it's pulled from an apocryphal book called The Assumption of Moses, and, it, and it's not Scripture. But there are several times in Scripture, in the letters that the apostles write to, to the churches, where they will quote sources outside of Scripture. Paul did that. He, he, he quoted different poets and such from the contemporary culture that they knew and understood. And so it, it doesn't mean that this whole apocryphal book called The Assumption of Moses is somehow canonical and a part of Holy Scripture. He just knows that the Jews in this community understand that book. They, they've read it. They grew up with it. And so they know the story. So it would be like me telling you uh, uh, something where I would I would quote a quote from uh, like a guy like Jordan Peterson, who, who I like a lot of what Jordan says, but he's not a believer. And so he might say something good, and I can say that, and it's true, and it's right, but it doesn't mean I'm saying take everything he says. So that's what's happening here. So that's where you get a little background of the story. You can study it out. It's 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 interesting study. But he... He gives them this rebuke, and he wants them to understand what Michael, who is the archangel, the top dog of the angels, is somehow in this fight with the body of Moses. I don't know why. We don't know why. It never tells us why. All we know is Michael did something. What did he do? He didn't presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. He didn't get on the devil. He didn't cuss him out. He didn't go after him and just start, you know, one way or the other. He said this, the Lord rebuke you. Michael, the powerful angel, the archangel, powerful, said, God will deal with you. I put it in the Lord's hands. He had enough understanding to understand the power of God. He dared not bring a reviling accusation. First, we, we see that Michael was in a battle, but that he battled in the Lord's authority. He didn't take it up as his own. Verse 10, he contrasts that with these people, the false teachers who are perverting the grace of God. He says, these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively woe to them. We've studied in Matthew about the woes, the curse that is on them for how they are willing to blaspheme things they don't even grasp. Woe to them. Why? For they walked in the way of Cain. What is that? It's, remember Cain from Adam and Eve's first two boys. Cain killed Abel. Why? And ultimately it came down to Cain's way of, of, of 
false worship, of empty religion, of unbelief, of bringing an unacceptable sacrifice to God, which led to jealousy and then, and then persecution of the true godly and eventually to murderous anger. Cain is the poster boy, if you will, for empty, vain religion. Those who have a form of godliness but deny its power. Many Christians, and I understand, many are afraid of secular humanism or of atheism or, 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 or the, just the world out there, right? It's crazy. It's wicked. It's evil. But listen to me. Dead religion is far more dangerous. Casual Christianity sends more people to hell than anything. These certain men were walking in the way of Cain, the way of dead religion. Self-righteous religion. And abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. He's using another Old Testament example from Numbers chapter 22 where uh, King Balak of, of Moab, you might be familiar with the story, he wanted help because Israel was coming into his area and he's like, they're killing everybody. They're beating all the countries. We don't Come put a curse on them. And he, he wouldn't. Until he got paid enough, in essence. He was willing to compromise for money. So Jude is saying those certain men have the same heart as Balaam. They're greedy for money. And then also, they are like those who perished in Korah's rebellion, which is from number 16. You might remember where Korah, who was a, 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 from the tribe of Levi, who was a prominent figure in, uh, during the time of Moses and when they were out in the desert, he got kind of tired of the authority that Moses and Aaron had. Like, why are you guys always at the top? And how come we have to listen to what you have to say? Aren't we just as good as you? And he ends up being judged by God. Do you remember the story? The earth opens up and swallows him and his whole family. It's a horrible thing that they went through all because... They were rebels against God's authorized man and will. He goes on in verse 12. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, they are shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds. That's ooh, just empty people. Swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn. The time you're supposed to come eat the juiciest fruit, there's nothing on them. They're twice dead. They're uprooted. They're wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Harsh words. Why? Why? Because great danger, great danger in any teaching that would pervert the grace of God. Lastly, letters, uh, number six, certain retribution for all the ungodly. This, again, is continuing the theme of judgment, that there's a reckoning. Verse 14, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. Do you think Jude wants us to know they're ungodly? 
and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Here's another challenging slash controversial issue. He brings up Enoch, who, who was Noah's great-grandfather. And um, this is, again, something that is pulled from an apocryphal book, uh, the book of Enoch. <clears throat> and it's a story that the church would have been familiar with. So he tells this story, too, as an illustration for judgment. <clears throat> uh, judgment is a theme of the apocryphal book of, of Enoch. And um, his focus is to understand that what Enoch said was true. That God will judge. And that that judgment will fall upon all, all the ungodly. Many people take the judgment of God lightly. It's sobering. And you say, man, Brian, I read passages like this in the Bible. I start getting nervous. It kind of scares me. Well, that's kind of the intention. <laughs> Is it raining outside yet? Not yet. Okay. Um, this is an aside, and, and, and let me just share my heart here. Then this is no, no negative against anyone staying home watching the sermon today. But I don't I, It's hard for me to believe anything the news says anymore, right? So when they're like, ah, oh, the massive hurricane is coming, I'm like, it's going to rain. And I hope, I hope everyone's okay. I hope we don't, you know. But warnings are serious, right? Warnings are meant to be taken seriously. And, and I'm taking, I got sandbags in front of areas of our house that have gotten too much water before and such, and so I, I want to take things seriously. But the authority also of who's saying warnings matters to me. <laughs> and I'm not saying I've taken this hurricane thing lightly, maybe a little bit, But this is something because it's spoken by God. We're never to take lightly. You can't listen to it like you're listening to the newsman and shrug it off. We hear it, we take it seriously, and we respond. The reality of coming judgment is sobering. He's being very hard on these false teachers, and rightfully so, because they're deadly. Verse 16, they're grumblers, they're malcontents, they follow their own sinful desires, they're loudmouth boasters, and they show favoritism to gain advantage. <clears throat> and we're going to close the book there and... Next week, we'll continue on, and actually, there'll be a response then. So, so what, do we, what do we do with this as the church? So we'll go through that next Sunday. We're picking up at verse 17. But for now, let, let the sobering words of Jude just kind of sit on you. And if it, any fear creeps up, what do you do? Because you might think, man... Am I, am I ungodly? 
because I grumble sometimes. I've been a loudmouth boaster. I certainly have followed my own sinful desires at times, so where does that leave me? And anytime Scripture comes at us with warnings, it's, it's grace. It's grace. And here's what I'll tell you. If, if you're a Christian, don't, don't go doubting your salvation. It's a good opportunity to examine your heart, though, to see what Scripture calls us to do to test with whether or not I'm in the faith. Are my eyes looking where I need to look? And one of the things I tell you is the fact that you're even concerned about it is a good sign that you're in the faith. And let us never be so proud to ever think that we wouldn't ever run off in such a way. If I get my eyes off Christ and stop persevering, my fall will be great. And so will yours. And you say, well, Brian, I have fallen a little bit. Then praise the Lord. Get your eyes on Him. Repent. It's a gracious gift that God gives you. If you can see your sin and you're able to confess it and say, God, you're right, I'm wrong, I turn to you, soften my heart, that's a gift. And may each of us do that today. One of the ways we can also, in closing, respond, let me call the musicians to come up and get ready for communion. We can respond to such hard words of judgment and such, we can take comfort as well. Because as Christians, we hear these words and, and we can understand that all wrongs and all injustices that are committed against God and against God's people will one day be settled. That God's children will be vindicated. That we don't need to seek vengeance God will settle all debts in His appointed time, and we can take comfort in that. And then second, for those of us who trust Christ, if you get a little nervous in such a judgment, get your eyes on the cross. Because His cross became our own final judgment. And it's finished. And it's done. He was condemned so you never, ever, ever will be. And I hope that makes your heart rejoice. And so, Father, as we come to you now, Lord, I pray that everyone here, whether present or listening online right now, that is hearing my voice would more so hear the voice of you and your word. I pray, God, that none of us would be so willfully rebellious toward the urgent word of Jude and the beautiful invitation of grace that, that we would continue down a path that would lead to destruction. Oh, God, help us. Help those struggling right now. Help those who are battling that battle right now, God, that they would find 
themselves caught up in the embrace of the Lord Jesus Christ who died in our place. God, I pray that each of our eyes would look to You and You alone today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.